Good morning, guys. So good to be with you all. It's been, it's been two years now, actually, since we've gotten to be here. So that's, this is a, a real gift. Let me set up my, my gear here. Okay. Uh, so before I dive into our message this morning, I'm just going to give a little, uh, a little more context for who we are. Adam does a great job, so I'll just add another layer. So as we mentioned before, uh, Mary and I and our, our kiddos, we have Layla and Sophia in the back. Looking very lovely with the merch. Uh, and we have Hope, our youngest, who's with the kids. Uh, we've been in the Middle East almost 15 years. Uh, Mary adds half years, like a child who's like turning seven. It's very endearing. She, she's, very, she's very precise with the, with the aging. Um, the, uh, but every half year counts in the Middle East, guys. They count. We count them. We do not jump over them. Uh, we've been in Lebanon for 12 of those years. And we launched out a long time ago with a group of friends, some of whom are in this room, Andrew and Sarah, who are a part of the Nava family, uh, and, and some of our dearest friends in the world, and have been a part of this journey. I just want to honor them today as well. This is their story as well, and their kiddos, uh, Ellie, Reese, Maggie, who I assume are in a better place. They are happily playing. The, uh, so, the, uh, so we are... Uh, yeah, we've been in the Middle East for about 12 years now, and, or in Lebanon for about 12 years now, and we've been guided by, I, I like to say it this way, uh, that we are, we are compelled by a promise. Uh, you know, you can, you can easily get compelled by, by need, uh, by a burden. I remember hearing people talk about missions when I was young, and they always talked about their burden, uh, and that always really freaked me out. Um, and it's hard to live for a long time compelled by a burden. Uh, but God, he, he feeds us on promises. And, uh, and, and the promise uh, for me goes all the way back to when I was uh, 20 years old. And a promise I feel like the Lord gave me when I was in Cairo on a short-term mission trip that changed the trajectory of my life. And it was around, the, the, around Habakkuk uh, 2.17 where it says, The knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as water covers the sea. And as a young man, I remember being compelled uh, as the Holy Spirit gave me faith for that, that, that this, this whole life that we live is God's story. And no matter what we see, no matter what type of chaos or suffering we see, God has a, a story that's unfolding of redemption and transformation. And that, that promise, more specifically for us, that, that, that we, carry, we, we still carry after these years, is that this is a, not only is that generally true that God is going to do that in the whole world, but that there is a specific promise for the Middle East in our generation, that we live in a, in a time of great awakening in the Muslim world and in the Arab world. And, uh, and the good news, the, the incredible privilege, you know, it would be worth it if 15 years in we came up here and said, we are still believing to see the first fruits of that promise. It would still be worth it, uh, as, as I will explore a bit further uh, it's not the outcomes that motivate us. It is, it is the one who gives the promises that motivates us. And we are not in control of the outcomes or the timings. It is not for us to know the, 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 the appointed times or epochs. But we are compelled by him and his worth. But I, it is a unique privilege uh, that we get to share with you. Part of kind of our calling is that we get to be with our brothers and sisters here in our home country and share, be ambassadors for the incredible things that God is doing uh, in the Muslim world. And from the time that we left in 2009 till today, it is a different region. Not because it's a more prosperous one. 
and not because it's a more secure one, not because people are more hopeful about their economic prospects, but because God is transforming lives, because his presence is creating hope and purpose where there was none. And uh, we can see the signs of that. I could, I, you know, we'll have a storytelling night for, for that. But uh, just to highlight a few, a few just incredible uh, fruit of that, of that transformation that we get to taste. Um, I, have a, I have a friend who, uh, who I work with very closely in Lebanon. He lived in Syria for many years and, and since then has been marked by this call to pray and to mobilize and to serve Syrians. And he says he remembers living in Syria and being at these prayer meetings with other uh, believers and how if you gathered all of the, like, the Christian missionaries in Syria and talked about the Muslims they knew who had come to faith, you could count them on one hand, the ones they knew, the people they could name in a whole, in a whole country where they were serving. Um, and last month, me and that same friend got to help mobilize and facilitate a, a conference to equip Syrian Muslims to pray for Syria, who have come to faith. And we, pray, we, we spent four or five days praying with between 50 and 60 Syrian Muslims who have come to faith living in Lebanon. These are the ones we know. These are the ones we can call up. And for him, it was this moment that I live in a different region, that I used to pray with foreigners that just give us one person who would listen. And now I pray with Syrians, God, use us to reach our nation. So the, 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 you know, the, the wave of transformation is just beginning, but it's, it's rising. And one of these Syrian refugees who we're very dear friends with, we've journeyed with for a number of years, uh, I've, tr- I've shared a lot about her story in this context. Uh, in, during COVID, we did a, a kind of a, a whole sending process because she had women in, that had come to know Jesus and were, were studying the scripture together who felt like under the pressures, uh, they were, you know, wanted to go back to, uh, to Syria. And so we wanted them to feel sent. So we ran like a training program and people gave towards a process to sort of bless them as they relaunched their lives back in Syria. Uh, and so they, this is a very humble group of, of pro- primarily illiterate women. And I remember sitting in the training with them and sitting around on the floor going, doing our, you know, our, our simple storytelling Bible audio, uh, you know, lessons that we go through. And at the, you know, at the end of that time, we maybe trained between 12 and 15 women who went back to Syria. So a few months ago, our friend, who was the initial believer here, still living in Lebanon, she went on a visit, like sort of a, an apostolic Pauline visit to go check on the believers in Syria. And, uh, and when she got there, she got, went to one of the towns. These women are in multiple regions, but she went to one of the towns where a lot of them are located. And... Sent, was sending back messages celebrating because she had a group of 50 women waiting to get baptized when she arrived. In Syria, in areas that were controlled by ISIS, in areas that still are, are, are they're in upheaval, there, are, there were women waiting for baptism. Now, that's, that's one person we know, but I assure you that the stories are more, than, there is, God is doing more than we can even imagine uh, in, in the, you know, and that's, that's, that's Syria, that's one corner of the Muslim world. Uh, we are living in, a, like right now, we, we can't fully appreciate what's, what's happening, but a, a, a transformation is going to mark the church in the coming years uh, because they are, right now they are hidden, but they are going to come to light and they're going to have, they're going to have a lot to teach us about what it means to follow Jesus. So with that in mind, 
It's an incredibly encouraging season. It's a season of great suffering. Uh, we live in Lebanon where we have hit, had wave after wave of suffering hit us, disillusionment, families, uh, whether it's the little personal story of a family who's lost their savings, the money they saved up, the scholarship money that was meant to send them to this degree they've been training for, and in a financial collapse, it all gets taken from them, uh, to the, the, you know, the more horrible stories of people who lost loved ones in the earthquake or in the explosion. Um, the, the violence in continue, Syria continues, and we know just ongoing stories of people who, uh, who are still suffering greatly. So it is a time of great suffering for the people that we work with, uh, a time of great anxiety and stress. And for us personally, in this particular moment in which I'm standing here today, it's a time of deep hurt and disappointment. In the last month, we experienced arguably the, the biggest uh, disappointment and betrayal from an Arab friend with whom we've walked very closely uh, in our entire time. Uh, and we are still in the, in the process of unpacking that. And so it's in that context that I want to open the scriptures today with you all. Uh, I want to read two passages. So you can turn with me to John 12. We're going to start with 20 to 28. John 12, 20, 28. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. All right, now let's open up to Romans 8. 18 through 27. So Paul, in his letter to the Romans, writes, this is Romans 8, 18 through 27. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility not willingly, but because of him who subjected, subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I'm just going to pray before I dive into this. Lord, I just invite you, I invite you, Holy Spirit, to do in our hearts what you would like to do. Uh, We yield to you, uh, that you would produce in us what you long to produce in us. And uh, I give you this time and uh, help Mary and I to to yield to your leadership and to, to... Yeah, give grace for us to share what you would have us deposit to this family. In Jesus' name, amen. So we have these two images in these two passages. We have this seed falls to the ground and dies in order to bear much fruit. And we have this image of of lots of groaning going on. Uh, a groaning world, groaning believers, a spirit that is groaning inside of us, lots of groaning. And uh, it's, but it's, he puts it in, the, in it, what he means by groaning is he's saying the groans of childbirth, um, which is different than like the groans of someone who's like doing heavy labor, or, like carrying a load or something like that. It's something else, something worse. Don't worry, women, I understand it's worse. Uh, but, but something else. And I think it's interesting. I just want to pause for a second. You know, these passages, they're, they're, this is how the Bible frames what life is about. We live in a moment, in an age, uh, where we have all these narratives about what life is about. And that's nothing new, actually. Uh, if the, the, question, the, the classic question of philosophers, if you go all the way back to like ancient Greece, they were trying to solve this question, what is the good life? Right? What is the good life? And to this day, that's the question everyone is asking. And the Bible's actually giving us a different question to ask. What if the question, what is the good life for me, is a completely irrelevant one? What if it's irrelevant? Now, it's hard for us because that's, we feel like that's the point, right? Figure out what works for me. Figure, is this the good life or would it be a better life if I lived over there or had that thing or was involved in this or had those friends? What is the good life? So if we, we go back to the ancient philosophers, there was two basic schools of philosophy. On one side, you had the Epicureans, okay? The Epicureans were the pleasure seekers, and they would say the good life is found in enjoying a delightful life, pleasantries. It, they weren't quite the party animals we make them out to be, but they, you know, they wanted peace of mind. They wanted uh, a sense of, of it's, about, it's about you ensuring that you delight in your life and it's pleasant to you, okay? 
Uh, so, so yeah, sure, that might mean being a party animal, but for many Epicureans, that was chill, being chill, having some boundaries from the rest of the world. You know, it was, it was a nice upper middle class aristocracy kind of philosophy to have. And, uh, and yet it's the, dominant, it's the dominant philosophy of Western culture somehow in the modern age. Hasn't always been, but right? What works for you? What feels good? What's the, what is the, the, you know, the fenced in, protected, comfortable, boundary life that's going to make you happy? And on the other end, you had the Stoics, and the Stoics uh, said that life was about civic duty, and it was about, uh, you know, not being, not being affected by your feelings or this or that, and it was this life that was marked by a sense of responsibility or duty, and if you're aware of the cultural dialogues that are happening, I work with young people, uh, and I'm seeing, there's actually a huge revival of Stoicism. Do you guys know this? Marcus Aurelius and this stuff is, this stuff is on the rise, and it's because people know that the Epicurean lie, it might help you chill out, but it kills the soul. There's something of our humanity lost when we're just trying to live for pleasure, live for peace. And so stoicism can come along and say, no, it's about responsibility, it's about duty, and you, know, you, you get these, uh, these voices and it has a strong appeal, but it's, it's obviously missing something. Because what the Bible says life is about, the framing, the purpose of life. The question isn't, how do I live the good life? The question is, what is my one life giving birth to? What is my one life giving birth to? What is my one life a seed of? Because it will, it's one, and it will be planted. It will fall to the ground. And what does it give life to? Because in the end, in the end, this, this good life we're trying so desperately to secure is so brief and so fragile, and it's passing like the wind. And the real question is, what eternal, weighty, glorious thing does my fragile little life get to give birth to, to participate in? The Bible isn't concerned with whether or not our life is particularly good because we might have, we might be blessed. We can thank God for all our blessings. We might have on paper a good life. We might also have on paper a very, very bad one. And our friends in the Middle East have on paper very, very bad lives. They raise their kids in tents and they suffer in dis discrimination daily, humiliation but that, what if the, the goodness or badness of your life is irrelevant? What if what matters is what your life gives birth to? So Paul says that this suffering, now, now why is this important, by the way, is because it shapes what we do when we suffer. We all will suffer. Is my suffer a rude interruption to my good life? Is my suffer, is, because in, 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 uh, you know, so often we can imagine that Jesus came to give us life, and that means the good life in this world. And therefore, when my life isn't so good, where is Jesus? Right? Um, obviously, Jesus didn't think that way. Should I, what should I say? God save me from this hour? No, for this purpose I have come. Father, glorify your name. And so we... Uh, if we don't have a grid of what our suffering is doing, what it's a part of, how, how it can 
depending on what happens inside of us, which I'll get to in a second, how it can participate in birthing something, then we are going to respond to our suffering in ways that damage our relationship with God. Does that make sense? And so Paul says this, I consider, now this is interesting because I woke up this morning and I don't open version when I woke up, but for some reason I did. I don't know what was happening. I was in a stupor and I, I opened up version. Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not the worst stupor in the world, I suppose, but I opened up version, and the, the version verse of the day globally for all these millions of people is this very verse from Romans 8, for I consider that our present suffering is nothing when compared to the glory, I don't have it open right now, but to the glory uh, that is being revealed to us. This morning was the, that was the, the verse, that one. Now, here's the amazing thing. Paul's using this image of childbirth, okay? Now, I'm going to do a very dangerous thing, and I'm going to explore a childbirth metaphor as a man. So, give me grace. I recognize I am not the suitable messenger, and uh, that I have no authority on which to speak. So, please, forgive me in advance. But, childbirth is an amazing image, because from what I hear, it's extraordinarily painful, okay? And, but what mother in here, I mean, I'm sure every mother in here would say, yeah, childbirth is painful. Yeah, right? I don't know if any of you are like on that other, that, you know, that, anyways, I'm not going to go there. The, any of you are on that like child, no, it's, you know, we, sorry, it's a funny story. We, we, when, when Mary was giving birth, we found some very hippie content that was just trying to assure her that just like a cat comfortably climbs into the dark and gives birth painlessly, so can you if you do it right. It's a hug, a birth hug. Uh, but I've yet to meet a woman who testifies that that is the case, so. Childbirth is painful. And any woman in here would say, yes, childbirth is painful, but, any mother here, but what mother, okay, when looking at their child, their child at age, as a newborn, at age three, at age four, at age 16, 24, 25, would ever say, ah, man, I don't know if it was worth it. (laughs) That doesn't negate how painful it was. Paul's point is that they're not worth comparing. Does that make sense? They're two different categories. You can't compare them. Now, you might try to compare uh, giving birth to having a kidney stone. You might try to compare it to running an ultra marathon, and you, you'd probably lose the comparison anyway, but you might try. But you can't compare it to a child, right? So you have suffering and you have birth, and Paul's point is this one, as hard and painful as the childbirth is, it cannot be put on the scale with this one. They're of two completely different natures. And he's trying to give us courage that whatever, whatever sufferings we are enduring cannot be put on the scale with the incredibly glorious, beautiful thing that God is birthing in the earth. And and it's not even worth, it's a silly conversation. And so... When we say this idea, and, and then he goes on and he says, you know, for the, we are a people who are enduring groaning with hope. That hope is everything. You remove the hope and the, there, you lose the power, the context of this, this groaning that Paul is talking about. So, I want to give this, this, this interesting moment I had this year that, that 
help me think about this in different terms. Um, my, I, I took a trip with my daughter Layla to Rome. We were in Rome for a few days, and we went. The first place we went, we we had to go pick up tickets for like sightseeing pass thing, and we were in the, the ticket office, and I was like, "What is?" You know, and they give it to me. I'm like, "What is this place?" And they they explain it, and they go, "This is the Carcer Maximus," and I'm like, "Okay, yeah, I've never heard of it. What is it?" And they go, "Well, it was the the uh, major penitentiary of ancient Rome." Okay, and. Then we walk down the stairs and you see signs and the the dots start to come together that the reason this is a site that is managed by actually by the Vatican is because they believe that both Peter and Paul spent time in these prisons. And you go down underground to a prison with no windows in the dark. You're in this dark kind of cavern spot. It's not very big. And... You know, you're sitting there imagining that at some point, not at the same time, but at some point, Paul would have been sitting here doing his thing, writing his letters, praying his psalms, worshiping, singing. A nobody in Rome, in the great empire of the world, sitting underground, a buried seed in a cell. That Peter, the same thing, a fisherman, an illiterate nobody, down in a prison cell, singing his songs of worship, praying. But the remarkable thing, as you might imagine, is you come up, come up out of that prison cell, and the first thing you see on the horizon are cathedrals. You see the fruit of centuries of worship. You see a place that people to this day come from around the world to come and to lift up the name of Jesus. And to imagine that For us, this is history. We take it for granted. It wasn't history for Peter and Paul. Right? N.T. Wright says that Paul's greatest, when you read through Paul's letters, Paul's greatest angst his whole life. The question he's always asking is, is it all for nothing? Have I labored in vain? He's always writing to the churches, please, guys, don't abandon the faith so that I haven't labored in vain. We look at Paul and think he laid the foundations For us, for this, Paul was nothing but a weak, vulnerable seed buried in the ground. He was nothing but a a nobody coming to the empire, hidden from the world, praying his prayers, writing his letters, sharing about the hope that he had. Uh, At the end of our trip, we went to a, uh, a place called the Catacombs. And again, you go down into these, you go on this guided tour, and you go down into the, this underground network. And what, basically what the catacombs were was that the early Christians in Rome, when they came to faith, they didn't want to be burned like the pagans because their bodies were seeds. Their bodies were promises of a resurrection. And they wanted to hold to that faith, and they wanted their very deaths to celebrate their hope. And so they would bury they would dig. They actually, over the course of the history of the catacombs, Christians. So imagine, like, you know, being a deacon in the church, you know, like here we count the offering and we do that stuff. Not anymore, it's all cashless. But at the time, there was a time when you had to actually count a physical offering. And these deacons would, like, get shovels and dig, like, catacombs to bury ancient Christians in. And to save real estate, they would bury them, like, stacks and stacks. So you walk through this space where, over the course of 200 years, half a million Christians were buried half a million in times of persecution, in times of difficulty. They kept just digging this underground cemetery to celebrate their hope. 
When you walk through, you, you see the artwork. Uh, some of the artwork still remains from that time. And one of the most common images, they show us before you go in, they show you what type of images uh, are, are commonly re repeated in the catacombs. That's a whole other conversation. It's really quite amazing. But one of them is the image of someone doing this. And they said that this was the ancient posture of thankfulness. And I can't imagine another place in the world where you would walk into, into an underground city cemetery and find artworks about thankfulness. It's lining the walls. And you come up to this beautiful spring, you know, uh, and the, 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 this Italian countryside stretching out around you, and you just feel hope. There was nothing heavy or freaky or dark about it. You come out and you, you, feel the, you feel like they have given you hope. They've passed the baton to you that it's all worth it. And the whole point, right, is that the question, how do I live my good life? It's not the question they were asking, right? The question they were asking is, how do I become the seed? How, what is my life giving birth to? And... The, as, we, as I was sharing just earlier, you know, in the, in the Middle East, we, we get to live our own version of this story. That uh, over the course of our time being there, you know, we get to see the, the, those early Peter and Paul days where there's just a couple of believers and, you know, we're praying and we're longing and we're hoping. And now, you know, it, we might be in those catacomb days where it's still hidden, and it's still, and it's still laying seeds, but they're multiplying, right? They're multiplying, and eventually, they'll give birth to something, something that the world can't imagine. Um, so, I'm going to pause for a moment. I'm going to invite my wife to come share a bit. We haven't worked on the transition, sorry. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> He's coming back. He's coming back. Um, okay, so just a little context. I'm a nurse, been working in Syrian refugee, doing medical clinics for the last 10 years. And the la I just graduated in May. I took another step, which was absolutely the father's. Been a dream in my heart since my early 20s. And I got my master's in humanitarian and disaster leadership from Wheaton. So it's the only like faith-based, it's talking about how do we as believers respond in disaster. Um, and so... I am um, in the middle of the, my last semester, in the middle of all of this, I, Turkey happens. The earthquake in Turkey happens. It hits Syria. No one can get into Syria. Um, and I am in, perfectly positioned to be able to respond in Turkey. So we, it's all a God story of how we got invited in. Um, by day two, we were invited. Day three, we're making preparations. Day four, we're in the country. Day five, we're at ground zero where the earthquake happens. And um, as I've been processing kind of like, how can I, because I'll give, I, I, will, I promise you, I can give you more stories on Tuesday night. But as I've been processing, like, what is it that I'm carrying for my brothers and sisters? Like, what am I bringing back from the brothers and sisters in the Middle East to my brothers and sisters here um, in America? Um, one of the things I just kept feeling from the Lord is that the Lord is moving in the most unlikely places. The Lord is moving in the most unlikely places. That's true in the Middle East, and that's true here. And, and, I, and the principles for us to see where the Lord is moving, 
I feel like, this is what I feel, is courage, hope, and perseverance, which is really going along with your guys' themes and scripture, obviously. But I, uh, as I'm unpacking what it took to get to Turkey, what I encountered when I was in Turkey, and then the work that we're continuing to do in Turkey, what are the principles that I get to partner with Jesus in this moment of crisis? And just to go back to what Drew's saying, like here we are standing with the, the thousands of years of traditions, with the believers who's gone before us, who laid their life down for the gospel, but church growth is marked by people who responded to crisis. They went in when there were plagues, and they served. They went in when there were crisis, and they served, and they died. But that is how church grew in the early church. And so I, one of the things I want to both challenge and inspire and exhort you guys to is that it takes great courage to follow Jesus into unlikely places. So I'm going to give a little context for even the turkey moment, which there should be a slide. Oh, wait, go back to the map. Oh, there we go. Okay, there we go. So Turkey is actually huge. It's, um, and the, here's where the earthquake hit. The area, the, the area that was affected, if you go back to the previous slide, was 140,000 square miles was affected, which is the size of Germany. So we have a huge, massive scale. 59,000 people were killed in Turkey. Um, 14 million people affected. So 16% of their population south of Turkey. It's like this huge thing. Um, and keep, you can keep moving. So here, I will actually stay here. So we're at the Syrian border, and one of the um, things about Turkey, and, and you guys probably know this, but I'm just adding to people who don't know, uh, the area where it's affected is near the Syrian border, which is a terrorist hotspot in the world. So ISIS, that's where ISIS floods into Syria, okay? So for the U.S., for lots of other countries, this is a no-go zone, right? But this is where crisis is. This is when it requires courage. This is when it requires, but this is where the church responds, right? Now, we end up getting to go in. We're perfectly equipped because not only am I getting my master's in this, but I also speak the language and I know the culture. Not totally Turkish culture, but I know Arab culture. There's about four to five million Syrians in the affected area. So that's, that's my specialty. I love Syrians. Um, so it's, it's setting me up for this, but there's, I feel like one of the places of courage that it also required for me, and just speaking to the, the American audience, is in all my learning, you have what like NGO culture would say is, is right and ethical and principled, okay? So not only do I have like, okay, there's like this idea that I'm going into a danger zone, but I also need to be careful that I'm doing everything right and ethical and principled, and I'm not using this crisis moment in someone's life to coerce them into knowing Jesus or something like that. So you've got just different layers of what do I, how do I position my heart and what do I actually bring into this moment? Um, the, the, it, I cannot describe. So we actually survived the Beirut explosion. Our house was a, like three kilometers away. We, I went in day, like right after and was helping with the cleanup of the Beirut explosion. It's like your brain can't fully take in the damage that happened in Beirut. But if I talk about what happened in Turkey, I can tell you that my brain has not fully comprehended the damage that happened in Turkey. And I, you're walking around an ancient city, ancient 
Antioch, okay? And it is completely destroyed. Miles. You, you, walk, you start in the center. You drive 20 minutes, it's destroyed. You drive 20 minutes in the opposite direction, it's dis- destroyed. East, west, north, south. Every single, every single thing is abandoned. There's no stores. There's nothing. Everything's destroyed. You know, buildings that ha- look, I mean, you guys have seen the pictures, but buildings that have been they don't even understand how it happened. There's some that have fallen over and collapsed. So there's some that are like squashed in like a cookie and there's cars underneath that. And I'm walking through when they're still rescuing people. So you're hearing people crying out. You're ha- you're, you've got rescue teams going around and I'm going in with the fear of the Lord. Obviously I have, I'm a nurse. <laughs> I know he wants me to respond in crisis, but what do I actually bring? What can I bring in this moment? And, um, and, as, and so the practical answer to that is I'm bringing medical help and I'm bringing presence. And what was so surprising is that as I'm, as I'm walking through, um, people are waiting outside of these crushed buildings and they're waiting to know if their family members are still alive or, or they've convinced themselves, right? Their family members are still alive. And you know what they want? Do you know what they need as I stand next to them? They want someone who will actually hold them. They're sobbing. And I would ask them if I could pray for them. And every single person said yes. They want me to pray for them. They're like so desperate. And it, the, I, I can't describe like the, the emotions because after the explosion, it was only despair. And it was so tangible, you could almost eat it. But with, in Turkey, it was like despair and hope in the same moment because everyone's still rescuing. So there's just this like intense despair. You have people on the streets in black sobbing and yelling and lamenting. And you have people on the streets waiting for family members. And it was, it was such a intense and vivid thing. But the thing that we could carry is his withness, Jesus with us in that moment, right? We're walking in the streets. We're, we're doing what we can to help practically. We're trying to do stuff with excellence, right? Medical stuff and rescue work. Then we start moving into rapid needs assessment because we recognize that Antioch is very resourced. The army's there. There's all kinds of rescue teams. So because of my experience in Lebanon, and I think to myself, this city is really resourced. Where are the places no one's going? Where are the places that maybe have, have a lot of damage? There's still things we can do. So we start dry, getting in our cars and breaking into small groups and going into small villages that have been severely damaged and have no help. And that's where we found the, you know, the most access, the ways we could use the money that people were sending in. And that's where we found relationships. And as we start going in and meet, you know, doing kind of mobile clinics and checking in with people, rap- rapid needs assessment so we can start getting them shelter. Um, again, I think what I, I, I underestimate and what I want to encourage us with is that the hope that we carry is a living hope. And there's a scripture, I think it's, here we go. So out of Hebrews, it says, so God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it's impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Jesus has already gone in there for us. So in the moment of their, of their devastating loss, they've lost everything, they've lost family members. I, I can't describe, it's not like I'm coming in and I'm trying to 
answer any of their big questions. I'm not coming in trying to placate or be optimistic. I'm actually just coming in to listen, to be with, and I, but I myself have a living hope that's burning inside me. And the only way I have it is because I'm spending time with Jesus who's renewing that hope that he's with me. He's my only hope for healing. He's their only hope for healing. And that, that I know the end of the story. And so like as I'm sitting with someone in their most devastating moment, they're so traumatized they can't even think, I'm actually tapping in. I'm not necessarily saying things, right? I'm not preaching, I'm not exhorting. I'm tapping into the living hope that's burning inside of me and I hope they just touch a little flicker of it. And I have some of them you know, interact with me as I listen, as I ask questions, as I do some basic, I'd call it spiritual first aid or psychological first aid, and they open up a little bit. There's moments where they just thank me. Thank you for coming. Thank you for listening. No one's done this with me. They'll hug me. They'll, they'll ask me to come again. Um, and so, again, when I think of what I carry for you guys if we want to see God in the most unlikely places, we do not need to be ashamed of the hope that we carry. And we, of course, bringing it in a, in a way that is uh, Jesus, that it's, it's with them in the moment, but we actually have a living hope. And then the last thing I was thinking was, keep moving, okay. Uh, Okay, this is basically those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. So let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. And I just want to say Let's not grow weary, okay? Because all of us have, maybe not all of us, but many of us walk through our own loss, our own grief, our own trauma, our own intensity. So, okay, maybe we knew the hope, but now we aren't feeling the hope anymore. But actually, this idea of persevering, right? This idea of let us not grow weary of, of doing good. I'm interacting with, like Drew's describing, the Syrians that I get with, that I'm spending my time and my days with in Lebanon are so, they're under so much suffering. So then I hop into a plane and go into another place with even more suffering. But it's not something inside of me. It's not that I'm super resilient, something, something I'm so, some, there's nothing about me in it. It is that the Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates us and that when I'm in that inner sanctuary with that Jesus has already gone before and he's with me in it, he is the one that can help me to not grow weary in doing good. So as we're going, and I, I had this, I'm going to show this picture just because you can't fully capture it. But my first visit, the blue-ish vibe, is I find a group of 11 families in a tent. We're talking 81 people in um sleeping in something smaller than the stage. Uh, two women gave birth the day before two sister-in-laws in this tent because the hospitals are either destroyed or maxed out. So I got to do the initial baby assessment on these babies. Um, and they asked me to come see this little girl named Rukaya. Rukaya has been vomiting and having diarrhea and she's very dehydrated. They couldn't get her any IV fluids or anything because again, they're either destroyed or maxed out. And the mom is of course, traumatized and fixating and asking me to help her. And I'm, I'm seeing Rukaya, and I can feel pretty, pretty quick. It's not a virus. It's not actually something. It's actually trauma. So I'm talking with, with Rukaya, and I'm 
you know, just asking her some things. She's crying softly. I pray over her. I kind of get, I get connected enough where I can really encourage her to try and eat. She won't eat and try and drink a little bit. And I pray over her. The next day, this doesn't always get to happen, but the next day we got to bring them 11 tents and so that they could actually all live in their own tent. And who runs out to meet me, calling me doctora, which is, I'm not, I'm a nurse, <laughs> and runs out to meet me, but in the, very, in the top photo, in the very middle, you can kind of see me, and she's right in front of me, and, her, and she's, she's eaten, she's drinking, she stopped vomiting, she stopped having diarrhea from the moment that I prayed with her, and she keeps saying, it's because you prayed, it's because you prayed. So then I get to go back, this is, the, this, I think this is visit two or three, where she's on my left, and, and I'm very connected now with Rukaya, right? I'm connected with her family. And so on every visit, I'm going to their family, and I think the thing I recognize is that if I go in and do some really, you know, nurse moment or I pray for people, but I never persevere and go back. I don't get to reap the fruit of seeing what God did. So being able to go back and see her and then weeks later see her and then months later see her, this is a, this is a group of, there's a group of 10 families, that, well, there's like eight now that we're doing Bible study with that, are, that have chosen to journey with us into this Bible. And, and I feel like the Lord targeted them from the beginning and all of it is through obviously faithfulness, but also the, you know, the Holy Spirit touching her. So even as you guys are, as you go to find God in the most unlikely places, I think part of that perseverance is just continuing and going back and seeing the things that you shared, making sure to follow up and make sure that you get to hear what God did after you shared. It's amazing. All right. So we're in act three of this show now. It's starting to land the plane. Um, okay, so I, I recognize that this is, you know, that, that oftentimes there's this wrestle in when, when we're hearing these types of stories and we recognize that we're, we're getting to speak on behalf of things that are very remote and intense and dramatic and, and that's a beautiful thing and God wants us to, to carry those things in our heart and let them shape us. But oftentimes there's a, a little wrestle of like, well, what next? And what is that practically? Okay, you know, what does suffering in prison mean for me? What does, uh, you know, the, what, what does groaning mean for me? And the good news is that that's kind of where the passage takes us, right? Eight, Romans 8, 26, in the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should. Okay, the Spirit helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, this word groanings, we've been talking about it a lot. The Strong's definition of this, this word groanings is, uh, is a deep expression of grief, anger, and desire. A deep expression of grief, anger, and desire. So what's, what's amazing here, guys, is that when we ask this question, how do we become the seed that what, what, how do we become the seed of the kingdom? How do we, you and me, participate in the, the, the child, 
the, the, the pains of childbirth that Paul's talking about. He says, you know, we actually don't know how to do that. In and of ourselves, we, we don't know how to do that. We're not good at that. We are weak. Paul himself is weak in this category. Our inclination, our nature is to be selfish, is to be self-preservationists, is to think about how we're just going to get through today. And that is being human. That is normal. But, but it doesn't mean that that's what God made us for. And there's an invitation to allow God to help us in our weakness. And he helps us by his spirit. Right? It says in verse 27, and he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So the Holy Spirit is taking what Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would take what is his and give it to us. In, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that the, that the spirit searches the very depths of God. Okay? So What's amazing is that we aren't trying to go out there and execute uh, uh, principles or do a noble thing. We, this whole journey starts in a place of weakness saying, Holy Spirit, would you start by groaning in me? Would you allow the very longings of God, the grief and anger and desire of God himself to arise inside of me because I don't know how to pray like I should. This, uh, I, I, you know, I think of, I think of uh, there, the, what's amazing about this posture, this language of groaning. It's actually this word groaning is the same word that is used uh, in the book of Acts. In, it's the same Greek word in the book of Acts when it quotes from the Exodus story. And God says that the groanings of my people have arisen to me. I've heard them and I've come to rescue them. So the beautiful thing about this is that when we take this verse seriously, when we begin this journey or in, re renew this, our, our embarkation on this journey with this posture of God, help me to pray. Help my heart to be, to be moved by, by your heart, by the groanings of your spirit. We're actually admitting, which I think to build on something Mary said, we're admitting that we are not the saviors. You know, Moses tried to be the savior. He ended up murdering someone and running away and, you know, having a career change. Uh, and he tried to be the savior and he messed it up. He messed it up. He runs away. He is humbled. He wanders around as a nobody. And then he meets the savior. And he falls on his knees before him. And only then, in that moment, in the presence of God, on his knees before God, listening to God, can Moses participate in the salvation of God, right? And so we, in the same way, this, the, the mission of the people of God begins in prayer. It begins on our knees. It begins in a posture of desperation. It begins when we look at the world. You know, it's, guys, the world we live in is a very, very messed up place. And we, uh, having grown up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in a middle-class environment, I must admit that I was blind to how broken our world is, to how the fact that most people who live in it face injustice and suffering every day. They face discrimination. They face humiliation every day. That is the normal experience of being a human, and we are in the 
the strange, exotic exception of the human experience. And that's, and God's not mad at us. The point is not that we should beat ourselves up for that. The point is that if we are to participate in what God is doing, we have to say, I, I admit that I am weak and I don't even know how to begin to pray for any of this. Would you groan in me? Would you do the, begin the work of changing my heart? Would you break through my fences and gates that I put up so that I don't have to feel any of this? so that I can maintain my protected world. And would you groan in me? Groaning is unpleasant. Yes. It's unpleasant to listen to. It's unpleasant to do it. But God groaned first. Jesus, it says in Hebrews 5, 7, uh, with great cries raised petitions to God. Uh, that It says when G- the, the same word for groaning that's used here is the word that's used when Jesus heals uh, a, a, I believe it's a deaf man in Mark. He looks up and it says that it translates that he sighed deeply, but it's the same word that he groaned. Jesus walked around every day of his life on earth, moved with the grief and the anger and the desire of the Father. Our Father is not neutral, He's not on the fence, He's not hard to get motivated, yeah. He's not trying to maintain His peace of mind. He is a consuming fire of grief, of anger, and of desire. And he longs to put something in us where we walk around this world and we are grieved. We are grieved from what the enemy has taken, what has been corrupted, what has been enslaved from the goodness of what God has created, that we are angry that such a world should exist, that people benefit from such things, that, that there are forces and strongholds that keep people in that position, and we are filled with desire because the point of this whole story is to restore creation to beauty, to glory, to intimacy with the Father. And those things, that's what God feels every second of every day, and he longs for us as his children to open wide our hearts and say, groan in me. And then... Then we just see what comes next. There's no plan. There's no, there's no ex- sorting it all out or checking all the boxes. If we really get on our knees and say, groan in me, there is no telling where that road goes. There's no telling what God will do. There's no telling what he will give birth to through us. And we shouldn't know, right? The, th- the spirit has things that no eye has seen nor has ever, ever entered the mind of man but it's hidden in God and it's revealed to us when we open up our hearts to him. I'm just going to pray. Adam, I don't know if you want to, if you, how you want to admit, do, I don't know. I'll just, I'll just start to pray and then we'll see what happens. <laughs> good. That's good. It's a good place to be. Lord, I come to you this morning and I confess my weakness, my my uh, my uh, my stubborn attachment to self-preservation, to selfishness. And I recognize that this life is a gift that, as the writer of Ecclesiastes says, it's vapor in the wind. And I give it to you again anew today. I open wide my heart and say, may my life 
be a seed in my life. Participate in what you want to birth. Welcome you, Holy Spirit, to groan in me today. Lord, I invite you to to awaken groanings in this room, groanings for this nation, for this city, for these neighborhoods, groanings for other nations. We just welcome you to groan within us. We want to feel what you feel. We don't want to be neutral. We don't want to be self-protective. We don't want to cling to that which we cannot keep. So just groan inside of us. I just want to share just a brief exhortation. Mary and I both feel this when we come back to America, that it is hard to be a passionate follower of Jesus in this nation and that you are fighting the good fight. We are shocked when we come back at how many of our close friends have friends who have walked away from the faith. And there is, yeah, I just pray, Lord, that no one in this room, that you would do something in our hearts where we would not be defined uh, by the cultural narratives around us, but that that we would be at perfect peace if, if our lives are lived in a season of sowing and not a season of reaping. But would you give us the courage to sow our lives? To sow our lives not because it works, not because it's successful, not because it looks good or feels good, but to sow our lives because you are worthy, because it is beautiful. So I pray over this room wherever there is deep discouragement and and grief, whether there is intense social pressure, Holy Spirit, would you release courage?